The last two weeks of sermons have been a little more interesting sermons. Uh, Two weeks ago, I did an experiment in church, complete with a lab coat and goggles. If you weren't here last week, it's probably my strangest sermon. Uh, I actually talked about the brain and how it worked, and I had a cow brain here and was sort of using it to point things out. Uh, If you missed it, you can find me. Just look me up on YouTube or jordanrimmer.com. I have it posted there. Um, But somebody asked me last week, well, what are you going to do next week? Well, this is what I'm going to do next week. It's a fairly straightforward sermon. Um, But it is, I think, some good and important material. A number of us from the church, leaders, elders, and deacons, and kind of got together for a training day a couple of months ago. And one of the things that came out of that was a few people said to me, you know, we really need to do this stuff in church. This is important material. And so this week and next week is that. And so I'm going to be talking about kind of our, some topics from our morning of that training this week and then the afternoon next week. We were privileged to have a pastor named uh, Pastor Graham Standish. Uh, he's a pastor of Cal- Calvin Church in Zalianople and uh, was our guest for the morning and presented. And he was a professor of mine in seminary. And we had a great morning and this is my attempt to share some of that with you here in worship. Our text is Acts, chapter 1, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. So this is after Jesus has ascended, Jesus has gone to be with the Father, but it is before Pentecost. Pentecost hasn't come yet. The disciples are trying to find a replacement for Judas. Judas has betrayed them, betrayed Jesus, and hung himself. But they felt as the disciples, since Jesus picked 12, sort of representing the 12 tribes of Israel, that there really should be 12. So they they sit down to decide who's going to be the replacement for Judas. And I'm in chapter 1, verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these men must, with us, be a resurrection, a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, and also, who, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they... And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the disciples look around trying to find a replacement, and they decide there's these two guys that have been with us through this whole thing. Isn't that kind of interesting to think about? We think about the 12 disciples, but they were able to pick two that were really with them through the whole thing just as well. And they go to decide who are going to be among these two. And what do they do? They pray. Their assumption in the prayer is that Jesus has already chosen That Jesus has a will for who's going to be the apostle and who's not. And we don't ever know what happens to this man, Joseph, who had two other names. 
But a lot, they sort of cast die, and they get Matthias. Isn't it interesting? This is before Pentecost. So the disciples don't have an understanding that the Holy Spirit is within them. They're not thinking about the fact that God is guiding them and leading them. They're just assuming that God has a will, that God has a plan, and that we ought to ask God what that plan is, and that God has a responsibility in that to show us. That when we cast the lots, we're assuming that God's going to be there and answer. This is how the disciples make decisions. This is how Jesus seems to make decisions. He assumes the Father has a will and he goes for it. See, making decisions is important. It shapes who we are. Life is a series of forks in the road. And over time, as you make a decision here, you make a decision there. Some good, some bad, but eventually it takes you to the person that you are right now. Now think about the way you make decisions as compared to the way the disciples make decisions. We are trained at a very early age. We're trained in school to analyze. The the word means to loose or to split apart, to separate. And so what we do is we make in our brains and sometimes on paper, we've got options and we make pros and cons. What's the good stuff about this decision and the bad stuff? And we're always cutting apart our decisions, looking for problems. What's wrong in this argument? And then we try to make the best decision we possibly can based on what we find in our analysis, in our back and forth. We tend in our lives to assume that God does not care about the little decisions we make. How often do we pray about decisions? Most of them we don't pray. And in fact, some of the ones we do pray, what do we say? We say, Lord, help me to make the right decision. We're not asking God for what God's decision is. We're hoping that God will help us make the right one. Or we'll pray after the decision. Lord, help that this is the right decision. But that is not what the disciples do. The disciples treat God as if God is right there with them. That Jesus is with them and cares about the decision. That Jesus wants to be part of the decision-making process. Not just put on the outside to come in later and give blessing. But to be part of the decision that they actually make. See, in our lives, we become what Pastor Craig Groeschel calls Christian atheists. We say that we're Christians, but we live our lives as if Jesus really isn't among us. As if God really doesn't care what we do with our lives. We just continue to make our decisions and we keep God on the sideline. Now there are a lot of problems with analysis. If you look at the Bible, the characters that make decisions the way we make decisions are not very good characters, right? The pharaohs. The Herods, the Pilate, those are the people that make the decisions the way we typically do. But you go through the Bible, all the time the Bible characters are trying to figure out what God's will is and trying to step into it. The problem with analysis, and analysis is not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, You want doctors to do analysis. You want your mechanic to bring your car in and to split it apart and figure out where the problem is to fix it. There's nothing wrong with analysis. It's just not what Christians are called to. Because it keeps God out of things. It tends to promote paralysis by analysis. Where we sit there thinking, you've probably been in this. Where you've got two options, you're trying to make a decision and they're both kind of equal. 
And the more you analyze it and the more you pick problems out, the more you're sure you have no idea which one to pick. The other problem is that when we go to make decisions, it tends to make us, in analysis, argumentative. It tends to make us problem-oriented. It tends to make us blind to other alternatives. And the worst part of analysis is that it cuts off the spiritual aspect of our lives. Where Jesus just fundamentally isn't part of our lives, he's over there somewhere. And the spiritual part of your life is really the thing that connects all the other ones. Your mental life, your physical life, your relational life. We were created as human beings to be in relationship with God. And because we were right with God, it helped all of our other relationships and all the things that we were meant to do. But what happens to Adam and Eve when they are separate from God because of their sin? It compiles, right? Their whole world goes to problems so much so that one of their sons kills another of their sons. When we separate our spiritual life out, our our lives just become disjointed and they don't work well. If we do this in our lives, and then I'm pretty sure we also do this in our churches. Don't we make a lot of decisions in the church by analysis? By making the, 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 the pros and cons list and trying to decide. I fear that we are more influenced in our churches by Robert's rules than the Holy Spirit. We vote and we betray ourselves in our vote when we say all those in favor signify by saying I. When we vote like that, we're voting on whether you are in favor of it or not. Is that a Christian way of making decisions? It is certainly not how the apostles made decisions. We start our meetings with prayer, but then we basically escort Jesus out of the room till we make our decisions and then we invite him back to bless what we have already decided. And our world looks at the church and says it wants to be spiritual but not religious. It identifies the church as a place where you don't go for spiritual advice, only religious advice. And I wonder if... if Part of the critique that the world has of the church is actually true. Are we a spiritually minded, spiritually focused people? Or are we a religion focused people? But in the Bible, there's another way to make decisions. Another approach. It's not analysis, but it's called discernment. Discernment means to separate apart. Okay, it's not cutting up, it's separating, it's sifting. The image might be of, of someone panning for gold. Where you get a bunch of rocks and you get them in, in the pan and you start moving them around. And the heavier rocks start to move away from the smaller rocks. And you start sifting through waiting for that golden nugget. Ra- waiting for that gift from God. This, I believe, is the way Christians are supposed to make decisions, even small decisions. Now, there's still a place for analysis, right? If you, if you sift for gold, what you're going to find is, sometimes you'll find these pieces of gold. But you know what you always had to do when you, when you found gold? You always had to bite into it. Because there's a thing called fool's gold. Okay, Fool's gold and real gold are different in terms of their texture. So you have to still do analysis. If God has a plan and a purpose for us to do, I still may have to make some decisions and make some plans to get there. But ultimately, discernment is about separating, is about waiting, is about listening. 
It's about assuming that God has something to say. That God is shaping you and shaping the path for you to follow. That Jesus is close. That Jesus has a plan, a purpose, and a will. The Bible says that that, that God knows the number of hairs on your head. That's the kind of little stuff that God cares about in your life. Do you even know the number of hairs that you have on your head? Some of you say less than I used to. God cares about you that much. Do you think he cares about where you work? you think he cares about the kind of car that you drive? Yes. If he cares about the number of hairs on your head, something you don't even really care about, he cares about all kinds of things that you consider little. Maybe we ought to be open to God's leading in those areas, to remain in a position of openness and listening. If you start getting into this, you start being aware and you're looking for God's will, it's amazing what happens. You start to begin to see it. Like, have you ever thought about buying something, like buying a car, and you're thinking about what color it's going to be, and then all of a sudden you see that color car everywhere, or that type of car everywhere, because your mind gets tuned in. With God, this means a lot of times we need to be quiet, we need to center ourselves, we need to be looking. But how will you know? That's the big question I get. How will you know if it's God's will or not? How do I know if it's my voice or if it's God's voice? Well, sometimes those can be confusing. Because we believe that we have the Holy Spirit within us, we believe that sometimes our voices may be God's voice. That when we listen to each other in a meeting or in a discussion, if the Holy Spirit is within you, then God might be speaking through you to me. Then again... I probably have some voices in my head that are certainly not God, and so do you. I believe, actually, this is not as big a worry as people make it to be. It's actually, we've been training our lives to do analysis, to split things apart, but I think actually our natural state is discernment. I think when you start doing it, it's actually more natural than people think. It's like, have you ever looked around your house for your glasses only to find them on your face? Or you look around for your cell phone or your keys and they were in your pocket the whole time. I think discernment is like that. And when you start listening for God, you're going to find it's natural for you to hear God and to pay attention. You've just been trained your whole life not to. That analysis feels natural for you, but it's trained that way. It's not your natural state as a Christian. Now, there are some ways you can check how God's... if. The voice is God's voice, and if it is God's will. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist tradition, used to have four things he would try to compare. And I think they're a hierarchy. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So whenever I hear from God, I want to know, does it fit with Scripture? If God is telling me to do something contrary to Scripture, it's not God. Does that fit with my tradition? The church has for 2,000 years been trying to understand Jesus and his work in this world. If God's trying to to call me to do something that's way outside of the tradition, i got to question it. Is it reason? Is there reason? This is where analysis can come in. Does it make sense? Is it even possible? But I will warn you that God does all kinds of stuff in the Bible and in the lives of Christians that most of us would deem impossible. An experience, does it fit with who I am in my own experience? And also I think we ought to trust God to do leading. 
If God really has a plan and purpose for you, if you can be open to it, then I think God has some responsibility to try to get you to listen. If you're open and you're trying to hear, I think God will take some of the effort of trying to communicate to you. So that if you make a bad decision, I, have the, I think God has the ability to help you make the right one if your position is that of the scriptures, not my will, but yours be done. And as a church, I think this means a number of things for us. What if the purpose of this church was not to figure out what everyone is in favor of, but to decide what is God doing and how do I get in on what God is doing? To see our meetings and our gatherings and even our coffee hour downstairs as deeply spiritual events where the Holy Spirit can speak through anyone and to anyone at any time. Graham Standish even advocates voting differently. He doesn't at his church vote all those in favor signify by saying I. He votes like this. All who sense this may be God's will say I. All those opposed nay. All those who sense this may be God's will. See what he also understands is that sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we got to be able to go back and change decisions. But that's okay if we're all as a church seeking God's will. That means we can't make rush decisions. We've got to be able to take our time to make decisions. And we have to see them as provisional. That is deeply my motive here. I want us to be a church that is open to God. That is experiencing God. For whom God is not out somewhere else but is here with us and among us. Graham Standish didn't tell this story on our event, to my recollection, but he does tell it in his book. There was a monastery in France where people used to come to hear the wisdom and to partake in the community that the monks had. It was a great place. People would travel from all over to spend an evening, a weekend, a week, getting spiritual depth from these people. But over time, the monks became proud they started to take themselves too seriously. For a long time, they had no visitors. They had no new monks coming in, and so they understood that without visitors and without new monks, eventually the monastery was going to have to close. One day, a man, scraggly, toothless, and smelly, visited the monastery. He was a joy to be around on the night that he was there. He took part in their prayers, took part in their meals. It was kind of a breath of fresh air. They could tell that he was a man of spiritual depth, though they never would have guessed it when he first showed up. Before the man went to leave, he, he talked to a couple of monks and he said, Listen, I need to tell you a secret. God has given me this to tell you. Christ is here in your midst. The Messiah is masquerading as one of your brothers. And then very quickly he left. Leaving the monks to wonder, who is Jesus in our midst? They started going through the list. Is it Brother Joseph? No, Brother Joseph is way too clumsy and foolish to be Jesus. Is it Brother Bernard? No, he's pompous. There's no way Brother Bernard is Jesus. And on and on, down the list they went, but they could never figure out who Jesus was among them, where he was masquerading. 
So they decided they had to do something different. They started to treat every monk at the monastery as if they might be Jesus, respecting them, listening to their words. They began to focus more passionately on God during worship, lest Christ be in the room and catch them dozing off. They read scripture with a renewed fervor. They let Christ, they didn't want Christ to see them daydreaming. They grew spiritually. Their prayers had new life. Their services became deeper experiences of God and they served one another all the more. And something amazing happened. Suddenly visitors began to come again. Suddenly pilgrims on their way found out that this was a place where people could encounter God and they once again donned their doors. New monks began to join. The life of that monastery was renewed. They became a place of spiritual life and spiritual seeking all because they became, became alive to Christ really being in their midst. I want to tell you today that Jesus Christ is alive and in our midst. He's in this church. He's in each other. He's in your lives. He's in you. He's in your work. He's in your family. He's in every decision and every aspect of your life. You can try to shut him out all you want. But he's there. Probably more than anything else, I think we as Christians should just be open to this reality. Not Christian atheists, but really believing that Christ is working in and among us. How differently our lives would run. How differently our church would be perceived. If this is the way we made decisions. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are in our midst. Forgive us for ever pretending that you're not. Lord, rush into our lives, into the little decisions. Rush into our church and speak and move and work, we pray. May we discern your will and have the boldness to follow it. In Jesus' name, amen.